Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, that you have gathered um, each and every one of us here today, God. Um, you have appointed it, uh, Father, that we would be here, Father, that we would receive your word, Father, and that we would walk out of here, Lord, changed. Father, and I pray for Dr. Piper as he comes, Lord. Um, I pray that you would anoint your servant, God, that you would um, remove any distractions in the room, Father, that your spirit would use him, Lord, to speak to um, desperate hearts in this room, Father. We are desperate, Lord, and we are desperate for you, God. We need you to move in our hearts, God. We need you to move in our minds. We need you to remove, God, the distractions of the world, God, and let us, Lord, worship you in spirit and in truth, God, so that the world can see that, God, and, and souls can come to you, Father. Thank you for this hour, God. Speak to us, Lord. We need to hear from you this morning. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, it looks like it's way too dark to read out there. So I don't know whether the technical folks can do anything about that, but it'd be nice to... Ooh, that's awesome. Let there be light. So if, if they can be brought up enough without ruining the video so that people can read, and I can see a few faces, I love it that way. If you can't, I understand. That's fine. But we're going to go to Hebrews this morning. Chapter 11. That verse that we just read about not thirsting, hungering anymore when you come to Christ is true. Jesus said it. What I want to do is try to avoid a misunderstanding from last night. Namely that satisfaction in God means an easy life. The absence of pain, it's not the case. So let's read verses 29 to 38 of Hebrews 11. And I remember the first time I talked through this and the shock it was to watch the transition happen in the middle of verse 35 from something everybody likes to think about when they think about faith to something nobody likes to think about when they think about faith. So let's read it. By faith, keep that in mind, all of this is happening by faith, the positive and the negative. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land. And the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. And what more shall we say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection. Stop. Because from here on out, it doesn't sound so good anymore. But keep in mind, it's still all by faith. Others were tortured, 
not accepting their release in order that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, ill-afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Now, both unbelievers and believers can have misunderstandings of the Christian life. And the task of preaching, I'm a pastor. I preach week in and week out at my church in Minneapolis. And the task of my life, and I believe you at another level of teaching and speaking, is to so describe the biblical vision of the Christian life and the meaning of faith and the meaning of satisfaction in God so that unbelievers get a realistic assessment of what this thing called Christianity is about and can make judgments on the basis of reality and not misunderstanding and so that believers have their misapprehensions corrected so that they can engage the Christian life what it really is and not what it isn't. And that's why this paragraph is so helpful. So what I want to do is give you, I think, five observations or points from this text that will take last night's call for you to pursue the fulfillment of your desire in God and put reality on it so that you don't walk out of here thinking that's an easy thing or a comfortable thing. It's not easy and it isn't comfortable. It may cost you your life. So, point number one. Through faith, God can and does work miracles and acts of providence to bring practical earthly help and deliverance to his people. God can and does work miracles and acts of providence to give practical help to students and deliverance from their troubles. And that's real plain. It's all over the place in this text, isn't it? By miracles, I mean interruptions into the ordinary cause-effect way that the world works. And you see several here. The dividing of the Red Sea, verse 29, to escape the people. The falling down of the walls of Jericho, verse 30. The shutting of the mouths of lions when Daniel was in the lion's den, verse 33. The quenching of the fire when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember that old story? These three men that get thrown into the fire because Nebuchadnezzar didn't like the fact that they wouldn't bow down to him because they tre treasured God more than they did their lives. And so they get thrown into the furnace. Result, nothing Except that the king gets converted because God quenches this fire and protects them, verse 34. Or the resurrection of the widow's son at Zarephath, verse 35a. So clearly, God can and does work miracles to rescue his people from trouble and from hard things. What do I mean by providence? I said he uses miracles and he uses acts of providence to do this. I mean, God 
like R.C. Sproul says, has an invisible hand in all that happens in the world. And apart from miracle, not by interrupting the normal cause effect flow of history, but by guiding it and using it in a providential way that looks like he may not be there, but he's there. That too is in this text. And that's how he helps you day in and day out in ways that sometimes you can see, sometimes you can't. For example, Rahab not perishing. There was a lot of human stuff going on there. Didn't look like God got her out of this, but he did. David conquering kingdoms, establishing justice. Elijah escaping the sword. How did he do that? Well, he ran away from Jezebel. And that was said to be by faith. Others putting foreign armies to flight. God is at work secretly in how the arrows land. I remember the movie Henry V, one of my favorite films because of those great speeches Henry made. But when they fought on Avincourt and they let loose those arrows, just shot at a lark. And the, and the arrows rained down on the French. Who decides where they land? God decides where they land. Every battle fought in the Bible where it says the horses made ready for the day of battle, but the Lord gives the victory is because the Lord guides swords, he guides arrows, he guides horses. He decides who trips and who stands, who gets the shield up in time and who doesn't. This is the providence of God. And this text says you are the beneficiary of that by faith. You get rescued over and over again. Things happen to you. For God's name and for your good that uh, weren't miraculous, but were God. And so that's here. So that's the first point. God uses miracle and God uses the invisible hand of providence to rescue his people, to help his people. Now, here's the second point. God does not always use miracles. And he does not always engage in acts of providence for the deliverance from suffering. But sometimes, by faith, God sustains his people through sufferings. Now, verses 35 to 38 make that crystal clear. Another way to say it would be, having true faith, having true faith is no guarantee of comfort and safety in this life. You can see this in two ways. First, verse 33, it begins with who by faith conquered kingdoms. And then without any break at all, that grammar extends on into verse 35 to 38. By faith, others were tortured. By faith, others experienced mockings and scourgings. So you can see faith is not absent in the midst of torture, faith is not absent when the mockings and scourgings come as though, where are you, God? I'm believing in you. Why are you letting me be scourged, whipped? That's not the way you should talk. It's by faith you're getting whipped, it says. The other way to see it is at the end of the paragraph in verse 39, which looks back on these sufferings of the saints and says, all these, these suffering people, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what is promised. It had to wait. Just think of that. By faith, 
All these people who were sawn in two, killed by the sword, walking without clothes amid caves and rocks, scourged and mocked. These are people who have faith. So don't let anybody tell you that faith leads you surely into a life of ease and a life of comfort. These all having gained approval. Do you ever feel disapproved by God when things go bad? Oh, I must have incurred his disapproval. Otherwise, things wouldn't be going bad for me. False conclusion. This text is so helpful. It's so realistic. It's so reassuring to saints who don't need added on to their burdens, the burden that God is necessarily disapproving of them at that moment. This text says exactly the opposite. Let's be specific. Let's get right in to verse 35, for example. Others were tortured. Torture. Very few people in this room, maybe nobody has ever been tortured. Some of you will be. What this text says is that God does not always change the hearts of a torturer so that he relents. Now, you may say at this moment, well, wait a minute. I don't I don't think you should get God involved there necessarily because torturers have free will. And God may not like it that this person is being tortured, but he can't do anything about it because men have free will. And so they're going to torture this person if they want to. And God can't stop it because he can't intrude upon their free will lest he take away their responsibility. And so God is looking on and he's sad and grieving, but he can't intervene. That's bad theology. It's, it's unbiblical. And, and I'll tell you very simply why. There are stories all over the Bible that show God intervening to restrain evil men to keep his people from being hurt. I'll give you one example. Um, in Genesis 20, there's the story of Abraham with his wife, Sarah, that go down into uh, Egypt, is it? And she's so pretty, he thinks they'll kill him in order to have her in the king's harem. Abimelech is the king. And so he, he lies, or tells a half-truth anyway, says, she's my sister. And so they take her, without killing him, into the harem. It's not a, a model way to be a husband. Abimelech ought to sleep with her. You know, first, the next woman into your harem, you try her out. And he didn't. Why? He's a pagan king. He's got free will, right? According to this theology. Here's what the text says. God comes to Abimelech in the morning and says, I also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, if God can do that to a pagan king, Abimelech, I kept you from sinning. I intruded. I went into your life. I stopped you. I cut that desire off. Ordinarily, you would sleep with a new woman in your harem. I didn't let you do it. If that's true, he can do the same thing to a jailer in the back room of a Mozambique jail who is about to lift his hand and whip a poor Christian. He can stop it. And this text says he doesn't. Even when the person has faith, by faith they were tortured. 
So don't use the argument, oh, the reason get tortured, the reason people get hurt is because men have free will and God doesn't want it to happen and he can't stop it because that would intrude upon baloney. That's not what the Bible teaches about God. He's God. He can do the Abimelech thing anytime he wants, believer or unbeliever, without compromising anybody's accountability. And therefore, that is not a legitimate conclusion. Here's another example from the text of how people with faith are sustained through suffering. Verse 37, they were stoned, they were sawn in two. Now, that's almost too horrible to think about, right? You don't want to linger on that one too long. Let your imagination run. How did they do it, you know? They start at the back or the front. What do you do? What do you cry out? Should you cry out at that moment as they're... I mean, picture yourself. You're going to die. They have set themselves to kill you. But they choose a way to kill you that's as horrible as they can think of. Now, here you are about to move into that. And you say, I'm ready to die, but oh God... Oh, God, where are you? This text says, by faith, they were approved and were sawn into. God can and does deliver and sometimes, often, he doesn't. See it again in verse 34 and 37. By faith they escaped the edge of the sword. That's verse 34. Verse 37. They were put to death by faith with the sword. There you got two swords. They escaped the edge of the sword by faith. Verse 37. They were put to death by faith with the sword. Remember this? You remember where this happened? In the New Testament? James, according to uh, Acts 12, is killed by Herod with the sword. And everybody in Jerusalem likes that. So he says, okay, I'll do that to Peter too. Puts Peter in jail. The night before he's going to kill him, an angel comes and releases him. He disappears. He's out of the city. So what happened to James? By faith, they escape the edge of the sword. By faith, they are put to death by the edge of the sword. Summary of that point. God does not always work miracles or acts of providence. Faith isn't about satisfying all your desires. Faith is about being so satisfied with Christ that you're willing to lose everything but him. Now, is that clear? Because I don't want anybody leaving these talks and saying, oh, it's all about my desire. I can do anything I want to make myself happy. No, you can't. You can only do what God wants to make you happy. And he may want you to be tortured, that you may have everlasting joy in his presence. Third point, 
Having faith is not the ultimate determining factor in whether you suffer or whether you escape. Having faith is not the ultimate determining factor in whether you suffer or whether you escape. God is. God's sovereign will, God's wisdom, God's love. Now, to me, this is immensely comforting. I would hate the thought, if the Bible taught it, that on top of my suffering and my pain and my difficulties, I would have to add the thought that I'm under the disapproval of God and that I must be an unbeliever. Because there are many people with that kind of theology. You wouldn't be... You wouldn't be going around in goat's clothing from cave to cave if you trusted God for for a nice set of clothes. You ever heard that theology? It's all over the place in America. The problem with your suffering is you don't trust God. Well, I told my people, and I've told them often, I'll never come to your hospital bed and say that to you. You wouldn't be here if you trusted God. You just trust God, you get well. You wouldn't be in this difficulty, you wouldn't be in this scrape, you wouldn't be in this sickness if you believed God. That's the opposite of what this text teaches. So it is not faith which decides whether you suffer or whether you don't. God decides. Faith is not about escaping suffering. Faith is about cherishing God so much you're willing to suffer for his namesake and for the extension of your joy into the lives of those who don't have it. It's the only way the mission's going to be done on campuses and in unreached peoples of the world. Point number four. The common feature of faith that escapes suffering and faith that endures suffering, the common feature is that both involve believing God himself is better than what life can give now and what death can take later. I'll say that again. The common feature in the thing called faith that escapes and that endures The common feature that makes this both faith is the confidence and the sense of deep, profound contentment in God that says he's better than what life offers here and what death takes here. He's better so that I won't be in idolatry to the things other than God while I live and I won't cling to them when I have to die. To live is Christ, to die is gain. It's all right here again. Now we can see this. One of the clearest illustrations is verse 35. By faith, women received back their dead by resurrection. So here you have this widow whose little boy was raised from the dead, for example, in the Old Testament. Then others were tortured, not accepting release, as though they could... Why didn't they? In order that they might obtain a better resurrection. Better than what? Well, the resurrection referred to earlier in the verse. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Others refused to escape so that they could get a better resurrection. Well, how how is it better? The little boy came back to life to die again. So did Lazarus, raised to die, raised to die, raised to suffer and die. 
These folks, they don't want that. They want the resurrection. Raised so that, like Jesus said, they will shine like the king, like the sun in the kingdom of their father. That's the resurrection they want. They don't want to come back to this veil of tears, this conveyor belt of corpses called history. They want all of Christ they can have now in heaven and that great resurrection day when they have a new body. There will be no more crying, no more pain, no more suffering for the former things have passed away. That's what they want more than they want anything else. In other words, faith is utterly in love with all that God will be for us beyond the grave. Now, most of you are what, 18 to 22 or somewhere in that vicinity and then some older ones here. And you don't spend a lot of time probably thinking about death. Well, you should spend some time thinking about it. Because in a room like this, it's very certain that a good number of you will die before January 2nd, 2002. And there's no guarantee anybody in this room will be alive. Some of you are going to die. And you will eventually all die if Christ doesn't come back. There isn't anything bigger than that. (laughs) That's bigger than all your classes. That's bigger than all your video games. That's bigger than all your dating relationships. That's bigger than any thrill or rush you might get from any particular high on drugs or sex or alcohol or parties or friends or new toys, whatever. This is big. And if it's big, you should give some big attention to it. And when you give big attention to it, if I have been used of God to accomplish anything, I hope that what will happen is you will say, I must be sure that beyond the grave, I will have God. I will have Christ on my side and as my treasure, as the satisfaction that's greater than everything I've left behind on this campus. Faith loves God more than life. Faith loves God more than family. Faith loves God more than success or house or the first million. Faith says whether God handles me tenderly or whether he gives me over to torture, I will trust him. Remember Job, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. That's the way faith talks. Faith says God is my reward. Verse 6, God is the builder of the city I long for. Verse 10, God is the treasure beyond the riches of Egypt. Verse 26, God is the possession that surpasses all others and abides forever. Verse 34, this is what faith is. So last night when I said, let's all pursue with all our might every day to maximize our satisfaction in God, I have in mind a very hard, life freely chosen for a thousand of you third a fourth of you that's what I'm after I want a fourth of you who choose it you're going to get it those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted Paul says not maybe the only reason you can escape persecution in life is to be disobedient But I want a thousand who embrace it. 
You say, yes. I'll go to a place where the likelihood is so high that it will be difficult. Malaria. Children's lives jeopardized. Marriage made harder, not easier, because of the stress of opposition. Violence and mob action and unjust arrests. I embrace it because Paul embraced it. Jesus embraced it. He did not count equality a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He humbled himself and became obedient under the cross. Why? For you. And then he calls you. He who would be my disciple must take his cross and follow me. The life I'm, I'm commending to you when I say pursue your fullest satisfaction in him is a hard life. Broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be that find it. Narrow and hard is the way that leads to life, and few there be that find it, but I would dare for a thousand. May God give it a thousand of you who would say, yes. I'll choose the hard thing to do on my campus. I'll choose the hard relationship to stay in, to care for this person. Nobody else likes to be around. When I graduate, instead of the million dollars, I'll choose the million people who've never heard the gospel. And there's no church in their midst. And there's no radio. And there's no literature. And I have everything. 911 and refrigeration and electricity and indoor plumbing and vehicles that get me where I want to go in the cold. Though some of you have to walk. I would choose that and not the million dollars. That's what this text is trying to do. Read the book of Hebrews. I know the book of Hebrews is full of mumbo jumbo. Melchizedek. Who knows about Melchizedek? And the priesthood and the sacrifices. and Look, don't let that stop you from reading this glorious inspired book of God. Because it's all about radical laying your life down for superior rewards. That's what this book is all about. If you have to, just start at chapter 10 and you'll see it. 10, 11, 12, 13. It's in every chapter to the end of that book about how embracing the hard thing is to get the great thing. Last point, number five. Those who love God more than life and suffer willingly, awaiting something better than earth can offer, are God's gift to the world. Those who love God so much, who cherish God so much, who count God to be their treasure above all the treasures that the earth can offer, are God's gift to the world when they suffer. Now, where am I getting that from this text? I'm getting it from verses 37 and 38, which, which go like this. They went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute. So there's no promise of preppy blouses and cool slacks or anything like that. Destitute in sheepskins and goatskins. Afflicted, ill-treated, 
People of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Now, what does that mean? People of whom the world was not worthy. Oh, brothers and sisters. At 18, you know this. Things are often not what they seem. Oh, learn that if you don't know that already. Things are not what they seem. Would you look on people who are being driven from one cave to the other in rags and say, those are the people of whom the world is not worthy. But what does it mean? Think about that phrase. People of whom the world is not worthy. You want to be one of those? I want to be one of those. Here's what that means. When the world is not worthy of them, it must mean they're a gift to the world that the world doesn't deserve to get. That's just another way of saying the world is not worthy of them. Well, they must then be, in God's mind, a gift to the world, and the world doesn't deserve the gift. Do you see the, the upside down vision of the world that the Bible, Hebrews has at this point? Those who are willing to so love Christ and so delight in Him and be so satisfied with Him that they let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. And whether they have clothes or not, and whether they have jobs or not, and whether they have esteem or not, doesn't matter to them if they could be used in the cause of love to move from our desire to their desire, which is where we're on our way now. Those people are a gift to the world. The poorest people, the ugliest people, the people that look utterly rejected, the people at which I was talking with a young woman from Brazil on Sunday. Oh, maybe it was Saturday. Saturday noon. A couple of them came over to our house for lunch. She goes to University of Illinois, Chicago, and she has friends in the Art Institute where they train artists in Chicago. And she said her friend put a little notice up in front of a guy. When she put it up and then he came of a Bible study. And the guy looked at it and he said, who in the world put that up in a place like this? And she said, I did. And he said, you're a Christian and you're studying here at this institution? And he never talked to her again. She is a gift to that institution. Despised, rejected, just like Jesus. And nobody was a greater gift to the world than Jesus. Despised, rejected, hated, scorned, stripped, shamed, mocked. At those moments, all the world would say, rotten garbage on Golgotha. That's all it is. The stone which the builders rejected has what? Become the chief cornerstone. So, put the two messages together now. I'm done. Last night, 
in this morning are my two messages on our desire. Yes, I don't retract anything I said last night. Devote your whole life to maximizing your pleasure in God. Which now, I hope, is clearer what that's going to look like. It's going to mean that you discover it's more blessed to give than to receive. And there will be more satisfaction in God if you lay your life down to extend that desire and that pleasure to others than if you keep it for yourself. Which brings us right now to the brink of moving tonight into their desire. Let's pray. Father in heaven, give, pray, a thousand people who are not your ordinary run-of-the-mill, middle-class, take-it-easy, long-for-an-easy-life Christian, but those who say, all right, I got one life to live and then eternity. Grant, O oh God, that there would be a thousand who would embrace the Christ-like path of humility and suffering and love and mission and suffering for the joy that was set before him, the everlasting glory of your presence. Through Christ I ask it.